Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome, fellow time travelers. As always, I have to say it's great to have you with me as we hurtle through history together, otherwise it'd be a damned lonely business. Huge thanks to everyone who's signed up to my Patreon site. Your help and support make this podcast, The Love Letter to the British Isles, what it is and always will be, which is to say, free. Uh, So, thank you for your support if you're there with me on Patreon. Uh, If you're there, I cannot put into words how much I appreciate it. If you're not a member yet and you want to join, simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and sign up. Every week you get a new and exclusive video, which I film here at home in Stirling. It's an eclectic mix that Paul and I put together, uh, all about history and the present day, how they collide, how they inform one another, how they are inseparable from one another. History and comment, I suppose you could say, uh, and a little bit of my philosophy of life thrown in for good measure. So God help us all. Right, now it's time for this week's love letter to the British Isles. Prepare to enter the mind of a genius, a man whose work is part of the building blocks of modern science. Cue the music. And what he's created there, like a poem or a beautiful piece of prose, it's just said to be lovely. In this episode, we're walking through a landscape of lochs, soft, rounded hills and mellow woodland. In an old ruin, amidst raggedy grass, ivy and moss, genius rests. A boy and then a man who spent his life looking out at the world with questioning eyes. Colour, light, even the sky obsessed him. Logic, maths, metaphysics and the laws of the universe. He showed that electricity, light and magnetism were all covered by the same fundamental natural laws. Following on from where Newton had left off, his mind made famous strides and beautiful conceptual leaps. Groundbreaking work that gave Albert Einstein the leg up that he needed as he continued to change the world. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles.
Hi Neil. Last week we rode the wave of devolution as it swept across the British Isles. Where are we this week? Paul, we're swapping combative political posturing to get a glimpse into the mind of a genius, a mathematician and scientist who learnt from those before him and in turn passed on a new way of thinking and understanding to the scientists who would follow him. This week we're meeting James Clark Maxwell, the man whose discovery of the laws of electrodynamics helped shape modern scientific thinking. Good morning, Paul. I can't help noticing that we're at number 98. Um, it's the, 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 the fact that we're getting close to the, to the end of the love letter is profoundly moving. Um, not quite in answer the end, to, in, It's not quite the end, no. Oh, no. No, it'll never end. It'll never end. It'll just, it'll just evolve. It'll just change shape and become something else, but we'll keep going. Uh, we're at a place called the Old Kirk. Uh, that Kirk is a Scottish word, really, for a church. It's the Old Church in a place called Parton. Uh, which is a village in Dumfries and Galloway. Now, this one's easily in my in my love letter because Dumfries and Galloway is where I did most of my growing up. I was born in Renfrew, which is a, a, a suburb of Glasgow, but my family, we were in Dumfries, which is the sort of principal town in Dumfries and Galloway by the time I was maybe six or seven years old. So I did most of my growing up. My mum still lives there and my sisters still live in Dumfries. So Dumfries and Galloway is close to me because it's a part of uh, Scotland, a part of Britain that, that I think is it's mostly overlooked. It's a bit of a backwater now. It's been bypassed, literally. People travelling north and south, people coming from the south, they're often making for places like the Highlands or they're making for Edinburgh and Glasgow. And Dumfries is a wee place, kind of a, a left turn, and they don't notice it. But if you go into Dumfries and Galloway, it's a beautiful county, beautiful, soft, a gently rounded landscape, gentle hills, woodlands, waterways. It's lovely. And the further out you go, you come into Galloway and eventually Galloway is the end of the west of Scotland. And it's, an, it's a, a hop, skip and a jump to Ireland. It, but anyway, it's, it's overlooked. And maybe that's the way people like it, because it means that house prices are quite low. <laughs> you can get a lot of bang for your buck in Dumfries and Galloway. Uh, and it's a very beautiful place. And so any excuse, basically, to think about that place that is so woven into my upbringing. In Parton, which is in... Uh, it's another, just a little dot on the map, really, in, in Dumfries and Galloway, there's a church, very traditional building, built in 1834. It's a classic, simple church building. You see hundreds of them dotted about the landscape. And if you stand with your back to its main door and look out, you're looking at the soft round hills I'm talking about and you get that sense nearby of water and woodland. You get a real sense of the character of Dumfries and Galloway just by, just by standing in Parton and having a look around. The River Dee rises in the Galloway Hills and it flows into Loch Ken, K-E-N, and that's within sight of the church. Uh, and then the, the water of Ken joins the flow from the Dee, and that, that water runs onto Kirkubri, which is a, a word that you look at it on, a, on a, a road sign and you wouldn't know how to pronounce it. It's Kirk Cud Bright, but it's pronounced Kirkubri, and it basically means the Church of Cuthbert. 
and at Kirkubri that water joins the Solway Firth, and so the Irish Sea. It's a beautiful bit of landscape. Parton, as a name, is actually a corruption of a Gaelic word, which means the top of the hill. And, and so it does. Parton sits up on high ground, and that's what gives it the outlook, and that's what lets you see so much of what Dumfries and Galloway is all about. I think probably for people that have hung on in there with the love letter, you've maybe gleaned that churches mean quite a lot to me. I'm, I'm not a church goer, but I do love churches large and small. You know, Durham Cathedral jumps immediately to mind and uh, and uh, Westminster Abbey and, and these places are always, they inspire something in me. So the fact that this one focuses on an old church is is in character for me. I often think about the quote or the, or the epitaph really of Sir Christopher Wren, which is in the fabric of St. Paul's Cathedral. Obviously, you know, the old cathedral of St. Paul's burned to the ground during that great fire of London in 1666. And then Christopher Wren was the architect who designed the replacement that's there today. And inside his epitaph reads, Si monumentum requires circumspice, which means if you seek his monument, look around, uh, which is a lovely thought. You know, it means that if you're here in, if you're here inside St. Paul's and you're thinking about Christopher Wren, He's here. This is him, embodied in the church. And so I th- I'm, I'm drawn, and, I, and I'm often, I think my love letters are quite often rooted consciously or unconsciously in places like the church at Parton. So if, you, if you're at the church, and you've had your back to the front door, and you've looked out and looked around and, and appreciated the landscape. I hope it's a nice day when you go, although Dumfries and Galloway is a very wet county. It's quite often raining over there, but when the sun comes out, it's, it's a little slice of heaven. But if you turn and walk around the left-hand side of the, fr- of the frontage, of the facade of the church, you'll see in the churchyard, in the kirkyard, a, a ruin of an even simpler building. And this was an earlier church dedicated to St Ninian, who came from Ireland in the 8th century to bring the Picts over to Christianity. So the, the, the church is dedicated to Ninian, but it's much younger than Ninian's time. It was, it was built in the start of the 1500s, uh, and for, the, for 300 years after that, it was the heart of the village. Before the present church was, was built or, or even needed, it was this old structure that mattered the most. Now if you go and visit, it's just a rectangle of dark grey masonry. Uh, the walls come up to sort of shoulder height, head height, but there's no roof, it's long gone. And inside there's no floor, it's just grass and dereliction really, it's just the, the masonry is woven with ivy and, and smothered in moss. But inside there are a couple of gravestones and one of the gravestones has, has on it four names. John Clark Maxwell, Francis Kay, Catherine Mary Dewar, and James Clark Maxwell. And if you stand by the grave, by the gravestone, you can't help but feel how it's open to the sky. And so there's a sense of infinity. You know, you're in this space, this little rectangle that once defined a church, a place of worship. But now that's gone. Now the church is, has moved. And this is just a, a little square with heaven above it.
But the James Clark Maxwell that's one of the four, he was born in a house at 14 India Street in Edinburgh on June the 13th, 1831. He was the son of the advocate John Clark Maxwell and his wife, Frances Kay. But having started out in Edinburgh, in the city, the family moved an address called Glenlayer House near the village of Corsuk, which is in Kirkubrishire, which we've already mentioned, Kirkubri, the Church of Cuthbert. They were moneyed, they were quite well to do, and the house that they moved into at Glenlayer had been specially built for them on land owned by John Maxwell's brother, who was Sir George Clark of Pennycook, the sixth baronet. So this is a family of some means. They're not overtly wealthy and powerful, but they're, they're to the manor born. So young James, James Clark Maxwell, I don't know, his name should be familiar to everyone. If there was balance in the universe, James Clark Maxwell would be a lot more famous and would come to mind more readily than he does, but hopefully we'll get to that through the telling of this part of the love letter. It does sound like his grave has been forgotten. He is forgotten, really. I don't know how many people... It's difficult, isn't it, to be objective about these things. I've been aware of James Clark Maxwell for... I don't know. I don't know when I first ran across his story. I was an adult. I didn't know about him in childhood at all, which is ironic, given that we're both connected to the same part of Scotland, the same part of the archipelago. I didn't come across his story. I didn't hear a thing about him at school, which is ridiculous, as, as will become apparent as this story goes on. There is a statue of him. Uh, it's at the end of George Street in Edinburgh. There's a, a bronze statue of him, seated. He looks a bit like Gandalf, you know, a sort of bearded figure. And, you know, there's a plaque on it giving his name and his dates. But I'm, I'm sure most people will just walk past, not, even to this day, not knowing really who he is. But James was, a, was a, a special boy. As soon as he could speak, and he seems to have begun speaking very early, he, be, he, he was always asking questions. And anyone who's had a child... You know that they are curious creatures. James was especially so, and he had questions to ask about everything, and in particular, anything that caught his eye. From he was two and three years old, he would say, show me how it does. Show me how it does that. Or he would say, what's the go of that? What's making that happen? Anything that was moving, flickering, reflecting light, anything. What's the go of that? And his parents would would give him answers, but he was rarely satisfied with the answers that he got, or he didn't want things explained with just a simple one-liner. And so he would keep on going. And so if if he'd asked, what's the go of that, and he wasn't satisfied with the answer, he would say, but what's the particular go of that? This coming from a child, probably if you had other things to be getting on with, they'd probably drive you up the wall, but it, it was just curiosity. He was especially and always drawn to, fascinated by, fixated on colour. He noticed the blue of the sky, the green of the ground. He noticed the colour of fabrics, of objects, of light. Anything and everything, he was interested in the colour. And so, whatever it was, a piece of clothing or a tree or a toy, or he, he would invariably ask what colour it was. And then if you told him it's red or it's blue or it's yellow or whatever, he would always follow up by saying, but how do you know it's red? How do you know it's blue? 
And it's such a big philosophical question. How would you go about explaining that? If you, if a child points at a ball and says, what colour is that? And you say red, and then they say, how do you know it's red? How do you know it's red? He, he, he was instinctively intuiting something. Because obviously we know now, let's say, for example, that insects say they perceive the same object, but they get a different, they get a different colour from it. You know, so a, a red ball is, is not just red and a yellow flower is not just yellow. That, you know, that's our perception of it. You know, that's, that's how we're interpreting the wavelength of the light reflected from it. The sun shines and the photons strike the yellow flower and they enter our eyes and they go through the optic nerve to the back of the brain where they're interpreted and your, your brain tells you that it's yellow. Or the colour that it is, the world tells you that that's yellow. That colour is yellow. But there's more going on. And James seems to have understood that or been suspicious about it from the very beginning. How do you know it's red? How do you know it's blue? It's such a good question. And really, from that point on, he spent his entire life with that kind of question and curiosity. He looked out at the world as a child does. The world just inspired from him one question after another. Rudyard Kipling, I think, that said, I kept six serving gentlemen. They taught me all I knew. Their names are how and why and when and what and where and who. And that's kind of like, that's drummed into you at journalism school in one form or another, that those are the six questions that you need to ask to get a story. How, why, when, where, what, who... So he's all about questions, and that defined his character for the whole of his life. And everything was wonderful to him. I think through his eyes, everything was fascinating. Maybe most of us were not maybe paying as much attention as James Clark Maxwell did to everything around us. It's there. The table's there, the window's there, the floor's there, and you just go about your business. But, but he seems to have been particularly... He noticed with a particular kind of noticing... There was a particular sharpness about the way he noticed everything, and everything he noticed demanded an explanation. We make a distinction, don't we, between um, religion and faith and science. We are definitely taught to understand the world via the scientific method, to trust the science. But there was a time when people also looked for answers in Scripture, in the Bible, and James Clark Maxwell was certainly of that ilk, from an early age, he, he committed vast tracts of scripture and, and the Psalms to memory. And, and all of his life he could recite great swathes of the Bible. And he sat through sermons, avidly paying attention to see if there were answers to the questions that he had about everything, if any of it would come via the ancient wisdom of the Bible. You know, he didn't discount anything as a possible source of an explanation. He was homeschooled to begin with, his mum taught him to begin with, and then his father paid for a tutor uh, to come to the house and teach little James. But eventually he was sent away to Edinburgh Academy. So away from home, at a young age, and when he arrived at Edinburgh Academy, he was very much a country mouse in amongst all the town mice. And his mum and dad had fitted him out with good clothes, but they made him stand out. You know, he was very distinctive look, and he had, I think, quite clumpy shoes, and in amongst all the towny boys, he stuck out. And he had an accent that was different from theirs, and that was enough to make him stick out. And 
ironically, given what was to come next, he, he seemed to those around him to struggle with his schoolwork to the extent that his nickname at school for a while was Dafty. That's quite Scottish, I don't know, but it means stupid. Daft, you know, if someone's a Dafty in Scotland, it means they're a bit dim. So they called him Dafty. But then the years started to pass and quite slowly at first and then with ever-increasing leaps and bounds, he left them all behind. Because his was an intellect literally like no other. On he left school, he went to Edinburgh University and he followed the traditional path of the of that part of the 19th century. So he studied logic and mathematics, metaphysics. Then he went on to Cambridge University. Before long he had the chair, which is to say he was at a professorship of, of natural philosophy, which we would call physics, at the Marshall College in Aberdeen. And all the time, his questioning and his innate ability to comprehend what he was looking at and find explanations for it meant that he was making these huge conceptual leaps all the while, always watching, always asking questions. He observed Saturn's rings. He continued to be obsessed with the effect of light and also of electricity and magnetism. Now, at that time, before the time of James Clerk Maxwell, science was already aware of light and electricity and magnetism. And they could, they could create magnetism and they could create electricity and of course they could, they could create light. But they, they didn't really understand them. I mean, to this day, scientists can create electricity. Of course they can. But as to what electricity actually is, what it actually is remains, a, remains an unanswered question to some extent. As had been the case from his earliest times, he was obsessed with colour. Always obsessed. He was the first to identify the primary colours or to understand the scientific primacy of red and blue and yellow. Red and blue and yellow are the colours, the primary colours, from which all secondary colours are made. Every other colour is, is made by mixing together red and blue and yellow. And he understood that in a way that previously no one else had. And of course he would, because he was preoccupied with, obsessed by colour. Um, while he was at King's College in London, in 1861, he took and developed, get this, the world's first colour photograph. 1861. I mean, photography was, you know, photography was in its infancy, really. And he took the first colour photograph. I think, I think, if, if you look for it, I'm sure it's a piece of, like, plaid. I think it's fabric. I think it's a photograph of woven fabric. And that was the subject of his photograph. He was part of the team that founded the Cavendish Laboratory. And we've already talked about Ernest Rutherford, the man who split the atom. Or that's the shorthand for what he did, splitting the atoms. It's not a scientific description of what he actually did, but that's what we say, that Ernest Rutherford, Sir Ernest Rutherford, split the atom. Well, that was in the Cavendish lab, and James Clark Maxwell was one of the founding fathers of the Cavendish Laboratory. But here we get to the nub of it. What he is most famous for, and his achievements are... A lot, it's a long list. But Maxwell understood intuitively and then demonstrated that electricity, light and magnetism were all governed by the same fundamental natural laws. So the scientists around him knew about light, magnetism and electricity. James Thurt Maxwell understood that they were united 
and light, electricity and magnetism are also united with radio waves. All of it is flowing. I see it in my imagination as invisible, intermingled vapours from an elemental fire. Like smoke or the shimmer of heat, because you can see that. But electricity and magnetism and light are united invisibly in a way that James Clerk Maxwell intuited and explained for the very first time. And those of a scientific bent say that the lines of maths that he wrote to explain the unified nature of electricity, light and magnetism, they're said to be some of the most beautiful lines of maths ever written by anyone. And science is the language nature speaks. If Mother Nature has a language, it's science. And James Clerk Maxwell seems to have been one of its most articulate exponents. And those who can read maths, they look at James Clerk Maxwell's lines about electricity and light and magnetism, and they see beauty in what he's created there, like a poem or a beautiful piece of prose. It's just said to be lovely. Most of us are just used to doing maths at school, aren't we? Mm. So to hear it talked about as being beautiful, it's a difficult concept to try and get your head around. Uh, I know. I'd like to think... I mean, I was hopeless. I wasn't very good at school, really, generally. I mean, I was quite good at English and I was quite good at history, but maths was beyond me. But I like to think that maybe if I had known somebody like James Clark Maxwell, it might have been slightly different. I think if I had been spoken to by somebody who instinctively understood maths as something beautiful and something to be loved in its own right, because I could never really quite get to grips with what maths was for. But nobody really sat me down and said, you know, maths is something that you just can appreciate like a piece of music, I suppose. You know, what's music for? Well, it's not really for anything, but we're captivated by it and haunted by it. And I think if somebody had, had just said that, that, that you can love math just because it's beautiful. That might have switched a light on in my head at a crucial moment, but <laughs> suddenly that time never happened. To bring it but sort of more down to earth, I think those who are mathematicians, those who are articulate and literate in the, in the language of nature, what James Clerk Maxwell really did was take a quantum leap forward from Sir Isaac Newton. Newton had stepped so far into understanding and because James Clerk Maxwell was in that way about, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, he was able to stand on, on Newton's shoulders and see further again. He, he couldn't have done it without Newton, but he had Newton and he was able to see even further beyond the horizon than anybody previously had. And then Albert Einstein, who came after, he said that his special theory of relativity owed its origins and would not have been possible had he not been able to take advantage of Maxwell's equations. You know, and he said, this change in the conception of reality is the most profound and the most fruitful that physics has experienced since the time of Newton. That's the words of Einstein. There's a lovely story about Einstein. Towards the end of his life and the end of his career, he'd been showered with awards. I mean, you can imagine how many honours he'd been given over the years. And I think it's Edinburgh University, but I would I, it doesn't really matter, and I would stand corrected if somebody else knows better, they can let us know. But 
I think it was Edinburgh University, contacted Einstein and they wanted him to come and receive an award. And he initially replied and said, thank you very much, but I'm, I'm not going to make the trip. But then some, some little while later, he got back in touch and he said, hold on, that lecture theatre in Edinburgh, if it can take place in there, I'll come, but only if you lift any linoleum or, or other floor covering from the, the floor, because I'll come so that I'll know that I've walked on the same boards as James Clark Maxwell. And so they, and so they did, and so he came. Wow. But he said, I, I want to know that I've trod the boards, the same boards, as James Clark Maxwell. That's how much James Clark Maxwell meant to Albert Einstein, which is lovely. Einstein also said, and I quote, one scientific epoch ended and another began with James Clark Maxwell. Now, this is a forgotten man. Everyone knows about Isaac Newton. Everybody knows about Albert Einstein. James Clark Maxwell, not so much. And it's a sin. It's a sin. Richard Feynman, who was a, a, a theoretical physicist, he won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1965. Um, and he, he was one of those who stood on the shoulders of Einstein and looked further ahead again because he was part of you know, that understanding of quantum mechanics. QT, quantum theory, which is a topsy-turvy, through-the-looking-glass perception of reality that most of us will never be able to grasp. But that was Feynman, and Feynman wrote, from a long view of the history of mankind, seen from, say, 10,000 years from now, there can be little doubt that the most significant event of the 19th century will be judged as Maxwell's discovery of the laws of electrodynamics, by which he meant that way in which Maxwell had understood the union of light, electricity and magnetism in a way that nobody previously had. Newton, for example, was, was, was a difficult guy, as I understand it. And some people have suggested that he may have been what we would describe as autistic, or maybe with Asperger's, or one of those states of being an altered reality, you know, that a percentage of the population have. But in any event, genius of the sort that these characters have, it's often a troubling, troubled gift. They are often, you know, Richard Feynman, I think, was a handful. You know, a difficult and challenging person to be around. But everyone says that James Clerk Maxwell was an absolute diamond. There's, you can't, there's, no one had a bad word to say about him. So he's got this towering intellect. He's understanding the world around him in a way that nobody else alive at the same time on the planet practically was understanding, or, or very few. And yet he was great. He had a great sense of humour. He was close to his parents. He wrote letters home all the time. He stayed in touch with his boyhood friends. Every chance he got, he would go home to Glen Lair, take part in the harvest, go to the pub, practical jokes. He, he was just, everyone seems to have loved him. He wasn't someone who was so, so brilliant that they had contempt for the rest of humanity, far from it. Apart from anything else, mixed in with all these other astonishing gifts, he was just a lovely man. If contemporary accounts of him are anything to go by. I mentioned that statue of him in Edinburgh. If you see photographs of him, you cannot believe. He looks old before his time, but then everyone did in those days. He had a beard, like I say, halfway down his chest, so he looks like Gandalf or Old Father Time or something. But he was only 48 when he died. So look at a photograph of him and, and tell yourself that, you know, 
he was only 48 when he died. He looks about 148 in the photograph. But it's a product of his time. Although he's not on anyone's radar in, in, in normal life, he's been worshipped by the cognoscenti ever since, ever since he died. Physicists basically have a holy trinity, and it's Newton on one side, Einstein on the other, and James Clerk Maxwell in the middle. He's as important as, as either, at least as. He's, he matters as much. In amongst his understanding of electrodynamics, he understood radio, radio waves, and, and so his work was, was amongst the building blocks for the, de for the development of radar. And, you know, it's radio telescopes and whatever that have given us the greatest reach into the solar system and into the galaxy and the wider universe. And so, on account of the extent to which he is foundational to that understanding, the highest mountain on Venus is called Maxwell Montes in his honour. So there's a mountain on Venus that bears his name. But back in Scotland, though, he's just not known. He's just a forgotten figure. And you'd have to say why, and I don't know what the answer is. He's maybe come a little bit more to the fore in, in recent times, but he's still largely unknown to most people. But without him, there's no getting away from the fact that if it hadn't been for him, we almost certainly wouldn't have, or certainly not in the way that we have them, radio, television, mobile phones, smartphones, GPS, and the internet. None of that would have been possible without him. Or, or, or if something had been, if there was something like them, they'd be different and they wouldn't be quite what we have. That we have what we have is because of Maxwell's understanding. Before James Clark, Maxwell, it, it was the world of yesterday and he led the way into tomorrow. Is the simplest way that I can explain it, really. I mean, try and imagine a world without the internet now. I mean, it's like collective consciousness or collective unconsciousness. Imagine a world without it. I could have made room in the love letter, I suppose, for the likes of Tim Berners-Lee. You know, he was at CERN in Switzerland when, when he came up with the World Wide Web. You know, people, there's, the internet is like all knowledge online. The World Wide Web is like, it's like the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's like the distillation of all the great mass of knowledge. The surface of the ocean is, is the World Wide Web riding on top of the internet. And obviously, it wasn't just Tim Berners-Lee that did all of that. There were other characters like John Postel and Vinton Cerf. But Tim Berners-Lee, Vinton Cerf and John Postel would not have been able to do what they did in developing the internet and the World Wide Web had it not been for Maxwell. That's, it. That's irrefutable. So thinking about the scale of his contribution, it's a philosophy. He came up with a new way to see reality a part of reality, and then so you, you come all the way back from that to Parton, back to that church, back to that ruin, the four walls of the old kirk, and you look briefly at the, at the grey granite of his gravestone, or the gravestone that bears his name amongst four, but really what you need to do is lift your head up and look straight up into infinity. You know, you look up at the limitless blue above. In an earlier love letter, we were in St Wiston's church in Repton and down in the crypt below the floor, which Sir John Betjeman described as sacred air encased in stone, so that underneath the floor of Repton Church it's something contained, something encased. And on the contrary, what you have at Parton Church is quite the opposite. 
you know, you stand at James Clark Maxwell's grave and you think about what the man did and you look up and you look into the sky and you get this sense in which to James Clerk Maxwell, you know, the whole earth was sacred and what it was encased by is infinity. He's just very, very special and perhaps like no other character in the in the love letter to the British Isles, he stands alone in some way. Obviously he's a fellow Scot, he had some of his life in the same part of the world that I had part of my younger life and even although I do not speak science, the language that nature speaks, I have a sense of how much he matters and so as far as individuals go there's no other single person that I would mention in the context of the love letter to the British Isles who matters, well certainly not more or possibly not even as much as James Clark Maxwell. A sturdy fortress, almost a thousand years old, dwarfed by a thriving metropolis of steel and glass. Now it's spick and span and perfectly kept, but for centuries it was a place that pricked hairs and shortened breath, somewhere to dread. Anne Boleyn's head was severed with a sword here. Queens, lords, ladies and all manner of folk savagely met their end behind its walls. Awful secrets of how we used to be swept beneath the carpet. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends for further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. Music's by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Althorpe Studios and the graphics by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and who continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.